in good company. Honest and transparent conversations between two good mates on an entrepreneurial journey together. Join Lisa Cordoff and myself, Carly Nimmo, while we explore what it means to create, grow and keep good company. Life and business is better when you're keeping good company. So a few months ago, I was speaking at a delightfully called Fuck Up Night on the Gold Coast, where I was introduced to Emma Kate Rose, who was also a speaker there speaking about, yeah, I guess, fuck up some failures. And while there, I was really taken by the way she set up and runs her social enterprise. And I thought it'd be really interesting to get her on to have a chat. So welcome, Emma Kate. Oh, thanks so much, Carly. Can you tell us a bit about how and why you started Food Connect? Right. Well, I need to um, put a little caveat on that. I didn't actually start it. It was um, it was a group of mums in Brisbane who got together with Robert, my partner, who was an ex-dairy farmer. And they decided that the conventional market system was pushing farmers off the land and had all sorts of ramifications along the food system. And so they encouraged Rob, who had lots of enthusiasm and energy at the time, to start a, um, it wasn't even called a social enterprise back then, actually, it was just called an experiment, to try and do something differently about how to access really good quality, ecologically or organically grown um, produce, fresh produce, without, you know, sending the farmers basically to the brink, but also finding ways that them as consumers could actually redefine themselves as food citizens, um, as people who were actively involved in the food system, in their local food system. And so it started out basically as a a very small group of people doing what they could do week to week. And a couple of years later, I came along and I had just launched a car sharing business with a view to address sustainable transport issues. So our values were very aligned in terms of what we thought about the world and what needed to be done. And we were both very passionate entrepreneurs and we, we both could see that business can be a force for good. You know, often we see business as being this sort of big baddie creating all the world's problems. And we thought, well, there are ways that we could probably try and do business to, you know, demonstrate that, you know, you can actually make a profit or make a living and also have positive social and environmental impacts at the same time um, without hurting things and people along the way. So I joined Food Connect in 2009, firstly as their, I think the official title was Community Animator, which was basically the person who went out into the community and got people all jazzed up about, you know, the idea of um, being a city cousin, which is a volunteer um, that we have um, in our distribution network. Um, And city cousins are basically people who open their homes up once a week and accept our deliveries for their local people in their suburb and locals come and pick up once a week from their porch or their garage and they have chats and their kids play and all sorts of things happen in that space. So that was my job to start with. And eventually I went on to become general manager who connects major investor, actually. <laughs> so, and we're still going 12 years later. Can I just say, Emma Kate, that uh, I am the recipient 
of goods from Food Connect have been for oh. years when I was living in Brisbane. Oh. Yes. And oh, uh, yes, I've just moved down to Melbourne. That's why when we kicked off this call, I was like, I'm so excited about this <laughs> because <laughs> um, one of my really, really great friends in Brisbane, her name's Amy, Amy from mm-hmm. Tarragindi. I don't know if you know Amy. And uh, she she is obviously one of those city cousins. So um, goes and collects all the food, divvies it all up. We put in our orders, all the good stuff. And she has the same, like when you were saying about, you know, business for good and all that kind of stuff, she at a very, very local level has taken that on and is, you know, has that co-op kind of group buying thing down pat. So whatever it is that we need, you know, even the eco uh, type of house products and beauty products and those sorts of things. So she does all of this stuff. And she chose Food Connect and sold it on to us because of, I mean, I just loved the fact that we were supporting local local growers and that it was mm. we were cutting out the middleman and we were getting this beautifully fresh produce, like outrageously fresh. Those That baby spinach would last like nine days. Um, yes. It was just, it was so good. Um but I didn't until Carly introduced me, introduced you to me in terms of the way the business has been set up. I didn't understand the depth at which, you know, she says yeah. everyone understands what a social enterprise is or whatever. Uh, that was actually really quite new for me. So yeah. I would love from the front end, I wanted to get involved with the business, but I'd love to know a little bit more about the back end of the business. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I guess that's something that. We haven't been that good at promoting, but it is such a point of difference for us in the market, you know, the way we structure and govern our business. So those sort of mm. um, things that are behind the scenes that, you know, you, you know, you see the ducks swimming along the surface. Well, you know, the governance and the structure and the way the principles of the business are the little feet that flap under the water, you know, keeping things going and keeping us on track. Um, and we use our, we've got, we wrote up a manifesto a couple of years ago, which both with the whole team as well as the involvement of the community to, um, help us basically write up, you know, the main principles of the business, um, in terms of what we wanted to achieve in the world and how we want to relate to each other as human beings. Um, and, you know, the principles of interconnectedness, you know, the acknowledgement that everyone's connected, you know, like we're all dependent on each other, whether we like it or not. We're all dependent on, you know, water to survive. We're all dependent on good soil to provide us with, you know, nourishing food. Um, so interdependence is a huge value of ours that we um, try and, you know, weave through every decision that we make and the way we um structure the business um there's also the concept of fairness so um you know fairness in the food system is a bit of a foreign concept to most food businesses because essentially what we see at the consumer end is a beautiful um you know if you're sitting in a restaurant or a cafe you know a beautifully laid out meal that's instagrammable um and marketable but what we're not asking is well how was that food not only grown, how was it, how were the people who grew it treated? Were they paid fairly for it? How was the food then transported, you know, from, from the farm? How long did it have to travel? What sort of impacts does that have? So, so fairness to us along the whole supply chain and the value chain, 
um, is one of our core tenants. We ask, is each person being rewarded fairly, um, you know, for for their contribution in the food system? And we try and make that as fair as possible. So you can see, you know, we're being very altruistic here in many ways because at the end of the day, as a business, we still have to remain competitive with the, you know, other organic suppliers out there. We also have to be fairly competitive with the major supermarkets because they do have 80% of the market share in Australia, which is, you know, the highest concentrated supermarket share in the world, basically, than any other country. Yeah, so our, our market is pretty much tied up by the two major supermarkets, Coles and Woolworths. Aldi is making a little bit of a dent. Um, but then again, where is their food coming from? Are they locally sourcing? So, so you know, we... Sorry, I just wanted to ask, why do you think that is? The market share? Yeah. Because we've just been through a number of decades where the ACCC, the Australian Consumer and Competition Commission, hasn't had staff or laws to um, pursue unconscionable conduct, to protect the rights of suppliers like farmers, small family farmers. And so they've basically had a monopoly on their sort of business practices, I guess, by driving the prices so far down. And the mantra in agriculture for, for since, you know, the 60s has been to get big or get out, which basically says if you're not turning over massive volumes of produce, then you uh, don't have a right to be in the game. And the supermarket knows this and they put pressure on the big farmers to reduce costs and be more and more efficient. And in order to do that, they've got to get bigger and bigger. And in order to do that, they have to borrow heavily through the banks, which means that they're always on this cycle of debt. And the supermarkets often are very late in paying their farmers. They often have this agreement with them that we won't pay you for this produce for at least 90 days. Yeah, um, I have that kind of arrangement with some of my corporates. It's uh, that, <laughs> like, that, it just makes me so angry because yeah. uh, you know I'm working with some really huge companies, and here I am a small provider, and yes. I'm waiting a full quarter because it's ninety days from invoice too. So that means that yes. I could have you know those services were provided quite likely even thirty days prior to that. So you're yes. waiting more than a quarter. 120 days sometimes to be paid for something that you've had to pay out all your expenses from. So cash flow just becomes such an issue for a lot of small business owners who are playing in that kind of market. Terrible business practice. Yeah, it is. It's really shocking. And I think um, recently the ACCC have been given a little bit more power. I know that there were some laws that were passed the other day that provided small businesses and small farmers with a little bit more of a level playing field. I'd have to get the details on that. But even so, I mean, it's just, it's so hard to compete in a monopolised market. I mean, not even, it's not just food, right? It's it's any small business operating in Australia at the moment. You know, they it's, it's a very, very difficult proposition when we all know that cash flow is king. And, you know, we're, we're often treated as the bank you know, for those large corporations who are just delaying payments all the time. You know, they're, they're relying on us to be waiting patiently in, in the wings so that, you know, they can go off and invest in whatever kind of crazy stuff they want to invest in. 
and we're left waiting. So it is, it's very, it, it, it does raise a lot of, you know, anger and frustration, but we really believe that if we're really transparent with how we do things, then that then ad- educates the market enough to be able to ask questions of other businesses that they deal with on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, over time, we're hoping that by making, by really shining a light on our practices, it will lead to more and more people in that market being educated about the food system in particular, in our case, and to ask those deeper questions about how business is done, you know. And I think there's an increasing hunger out there amongst consumers to have that transparency with everything that they buy. Yeah, and speaking of like a level playing field, one of the things that um, I guess really triggered a lot of the people in the, uh, you know, at the fuck up night was the mm. way that you you live that in, in your own company. Um, because yeah. do you want to talk a little bit about how your, <laughs> your pay structure kind of works? Yeah. So um, this idea came out of a couple of, areas of um, Robert and I are are really we're life partners as well I must say we're not just business partners but we have a lot of sort of side passions in terms of the things that we like to follow and we're really passionate about new the sort of social capital new economics patient capital anything in the money scene that that sort of is a little bit alternative or new and treats capitalism in a in a fairer way or a more socially just way. So we came across a number of people or organisations that are looking at, you know, like the New Economics Foundation in London did a study a number of years ago on what is a living wage. And so as an organisation, we had that discussion with our farmers and our staff and we said, well, okay, let's work out how much farmers are getting per hour by buying through Food Connect by supplying Food Connect. And we worked out that for all of the hours that they put in on their farms, week in, week out, they were getting about $8 an hour, roughly. And we sort of all looked around the room, just went, oh, okay, well, we live in the city. Um, Rent's probably a bit higher. We have to, you know, use expensive public transport and blah, 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 blah. So maybe there are some living costs there that are a little bit higher. Plus, you know, um, we also have to, we don't have the benefit of beautiful fresh air and lovely scenery like the farmers do. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So you could see the kind of conversations that we were having, like a lot of things were being discussed that, you know, a lot of us hadn't thought about before when it comes to like determining what you're going to pay people, right? So there were lots of like soft, tangible things. And then, of course, there were the things that were just basically set down in law. So at the end of the day, we decided to, for all staff to be paid at the very least an award wage, which was three times as much as what the farmers were getting per hour anyway. And we decided that that was an adequate living wage. So we just worked with Fair Work Australia to work out what the best industry awards were for the various um, positions that we have in the company and we stuck to those. But then on top of that, we also wanted to demonstrate to farmers who come from a background of very low trust. So farmers are very used to being ripped off by middlemen. They're very used to being, you know, screwed down on price. They often don't see what happens to their produce when it leaves the farm gate. It goes in a big truck. It lands at the central markets at Rockley. And sometimes it will sit there on a pallet 
rotting and it's totally out of control. So um, it'll either be used or it is used depending on the ups and downs of the market and the supply and demand. So, for example, if there's a tomato glut, um, even organic tomatoes aren't getting much money at the moment because there's such a tomato glut. They're actually half the price. So they're usually $40 a box. They're at the moment, they're $20 a box. Now that might be the, below the cost of production for some organic farmers. But once it leaves the farm gate, they've got no control really. A support, an agent can ring up and say, oh, look, mate, they were just not in good condition. So we've had to bin the whole lot. Sorry, you're not going to get any money for it. So we have to weigh up those risks. All these conversations happen when we're talking about, well, what's a living wage? What's fair reward for the work that you're doing? So we built into our rules that 40 to 50% of the retail dollar goes back to the farmer. They set the price with us. We have a conversation with them. They say, this is what's going to get me through the season. There's no fluctuating prices from week to week. It's one set price for the year or the season. So they determine exactly what they're going to get and what's fair. We open the books to the farmers as well and we show them what all the other farmers are getting for their produce. So they all know, because in the horticultural industry in particular, it's extremely competitive. They've basically been conditioned over the decades to hate each other and not talk, which is the way of competition. And we're trying to create something that's more collaborative, a food system where farmers are sharing information and helping each other. So by opening the books on the prices that they're getting, that removes a little bit of that barrier. Through to the staff, we decided that because of this trust issue with farmers and the, you know, the, the absolute loss of faith that they have, we had to prove ourselves because we did start as an experiment. It was a very risky for some of them to say, yes, I'll sign up to you guys because it had never been done before what we were trying to attempt. So we promised them that no one was going to sell the business and, you know, or, or allow Coles or Woolworths to buy it, that it would always be, there's an asset lock on the business at the moment, so it can't be sold. It can be handed on to a not-for-profit organisation, but it can't be sold. So that's one piece of the puzzle for farmers that basically gave them an assurance that we're not just some, you know, venture capitalists coming along and with a good idea and moving on to the next thing and selling it off. The other thing too was there is a perception amongst rural communities that city people get paid way too much for doing very strange things that they don't really understand. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know, kind of true. I remember Rob, yeah, it is. And Rob and I have had this discussion once and he said, look at those tall buildings. Like they're like storage containers, aren't they? Like what do they do in there all day <laughs> you know, at those desks? Like it was, it was just... For a farmer, it's so mystifying, you know, sitting at a desk every day and, and wondering what the hell actually gets done. And, you know, part of me can really relate to that, having been one of those office desk types many moons ago. You do often Sometimes wonder, not much does get done. <laughs> yes, that's right, exactly. Yeah, especially in one um, public service institution that shall remain nameless <laughs> that I was working at 20 years ago. But anyway, so we decided that, okay, if we can demonstrate to the farmers that no one's going to run off and make big profits and the CEO isn't going to get, you know, a million dollars a year, then maybe they'll, that trust will, another barrier to that trust will actually be broken down. So, and also Robert comes from a background of being a dairy farmer and he saw the whole dairy cooperatives, the traditional dairy cooperatives being dissolved through demutualisation and then corporatisation. And when he lost his farm in the early 2000s, 
his local milk cooperative that he was supplying to, he was getting less than 20 cents a litre for his milk, but at the same time the CEO of the milk corporation, even though they still called themselves a cooperative at the time, was getting, you know, a million dollars a year basically in salary. And he was driven off his farm because he, he was, um, you know, heavily in debt, over leveraged and was coming off the back of a three-year drought. So he lost the fifth generation farm. He's the, he's the generation that lost the farm and has to carry that with him, you know, for the rest of his life, basically. So he could see how the corporates were gouging out the food system and how farmers were being let down by that. So having this sort of fairness in our wage ratio was, was really important from that perspective. So we've got it, got it now in our manifesto that the highest paid person at Food Connect cannot earn more than double the lowest paid person in terms of an hourly rate. So at the moment, Rob's the highest paid person and he would be on $35 an hour and uh, the lowest paid person I think has just left school and they're on something like $17 an hour. So that's, I mean, and I remember being at the fuck up night and a lot of people were just going, what, how can you live on that? I know, but also like, I I think the, I think the thing that they found the most triggering was like, why would you go into business for yourself? Like most people go into business for themselves, you know, yeah, yeah, there's an element of service and all that kind of jazz, but they go in because they can earn whatever the hell they want. You know, there's no, no cap on what they can earn. And so it seems very strange to, but you know, but the 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 honest truth of that is most of us aren't even earning a uh, you know a basic award wage. That's what I was going to say. We're not paying ourselves super. We're not exactly. (laughs) So so it's so interesting that I mean that's really the reality, right? Like the bulk of us are earning under $50,000 a year anyway, working our ass off for ourselves. Yeah, so, that's right. um, but I feel like it's the potential to earn and mm-hmm. that there's a cap on that for you guys who have taken all the risk. And that's I think right, that's what yeah. really triggered the guys, you know? Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, and that's an interesting discussion, the risk, isn't it? Um, because at Food Connect, we talk about risk a lot in terms of the food system and, you know, pretty much today the food system the risk is all on the farmer they're the ones who have to you know deal with the climate the elements the weather the um pest and disease you know yeah that's totally out of their control and they've got to apply those crazy elements to a consistent supply to the supermarkets right which you know why would you do it really it just seems like a recipe for insanity And so as a social enterprise, you know, as a business for good, we have to ask those questions. Well, where is the risk in the food supply chain? Who's taking the brunt of it? Sure, it's okay. We can start a business, a little, you know, small business and um, pay ourselves, you know, a a modest wage or whatever. And technically the risk is all on us. Um, As Robert and I, Robert's the director, I'm the major investor, Yes, when you've got your own skin in the game, you tend to put more hours in and you're also legally and fiscally responsible for all the decisions that get made. That's fine. And, yes, I do see a point with those that make the argument that say, well, you know, if you've got all the legal and and fiscal risk, then you should be paid way more than everybody else because, you know, they don't have the skin in the game. We don't take that view because 
we're trying to do business in a way that is more participatory for everybody. So we want the farmers to have equal input to the staff. We want our customers to have equal input to the farmers. Like for us, anywhere we can establish some kind of, you know, participation in the decision-making, not, you know, to a point, it can't be unruly and crazy, but it's it's got to be productive and, and, um, and useful for the continuation of the business. But there's no point in trying to change a system if you're just going to keep doing the status quo, and that is owners taking everything, workers getting kind of tokenistic acknowledgement, um, you know, and suppliers getting screwed. It, we're, we're not going to change the world by continuing that mantra. I feel so crazy inspired right now. I am just loving. I knew you would love this conversation, Lisa. Oh, yeah. I knew you were going to love it. like <laughs> drinking it in. Who needed that coffee this morning? <laughs> not me. Um, yeah. But what I wanted to ask about is I guess two things. I'm really interested to know what you love about running this business like the bits that really, really light you up. And I'm also interested to know what growth you're looking for or is expansion, how do you manage? Maybe are there more and more farmers who want to jump on board? Are there more and more of your city cousins wanting to to jump on board? How, how do you manage all that in a really sustainable way? Do you have, you know, big goals and, and visions for that? And also what parts of the biz, yeah, light you up the most? Okay. Oh, my gosh, where do I start? I'll start with the lighting up <laughs> stuff. So I think for me, if I go away anywhere, so I've just recently been in Tasmania, which has great food, but I had to, I was there on family business and I was away for about, I don't know, oh, a week and a half. And I got back home and I was just, you know, craving our fruit and vegetables. I just was, I really miss them. Like I had this visceral, physiological, crazy kind of, you know, when you're pregnant and you crave something like an orange or, you know, chocolate frosty or something. Fruit. Yeah, <laughs> frosty <laughs> All um, the shit food. It's, it's like, well, yeah, all the shit food, but this was like a craving for all the good stuff. And, and I thought, yeah. wow, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, and sometimes, you know, over Christmas holidays, I've noticed over the years, if we choose to shut the business down for a couple of weeks to give everyone a rest, we and go away and visit family. By the time we get back, we're just like, oh my god, I'm so glad we're <laughs> we're back. So the food, like the freshness, the freshness of the food, um, the taste, it's just like it's just unbelievable. I'll second that. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. I, and yeah, like you you walk in when on delivery day on Monday and you can literally feel the energy jumping out of the leaves of the lettuce. Like it's just amazing. And you know, you, you look in a box and there's a little frog in there or there's a little you know that because there's living things in the boxes that come straight from the farms, that there has not been one chemical dropped on that, you know, in the making of it. So that's that kind of really gives me gooseies, the the taste and the and the freshness and the nutrition. And I guess the other thing that really, um, for me, I'm sort of a, although I'm getting older, I'm starting to like my own personal reclusive time more and more, but <laughs> I've always been a pe bit of a people person and to be in a business that is more like a community rather than a business, 
um, that's the sort of thing that just that just the the wonderful feeling when you walk into Food Connect. Everyone looks up from their desk and says hi with a smile. Sounds really cheesy, but it does actually happen. You get offered a cup of tea. Um, you know, you you're treated like a human being, no matter who you are. So the Which people is so unusual. <laughs> it is, and, yeah. and it's so sad that it's so unusual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I guess that comes down to the culture of the business, and that gets really driven by your values and what you're trying to achieve in the world and how you go about doing that. And I think if you get those things right, then you are fostering this environment of of goodwill and um, and excitement. You know, there's yeah, something up here. You know, a lot of people. Yes, yeah, that's right. And and a lot of people um, who come to visit us, and we get a lot of people come and visit us, a lot of people use us as research guinea pigs too, a lot of kind of uni students. And um, they come in and they go, oh, I don't know what it is about Food Connects. Like it's got such a daggy warehouse. Like we literally like we run the business. We don't have any extra money to like to spend on retrofitting a beautiful flash minimalist design kind of architecturally inspired um <laughs> you know warehouse it look- <laughs> it's just a packing shed you know that's what it is it's a packing shed and but they come in and they go I don't know what it is about this shed but it's it feels really amazing there's something going on here you know and it's those intangible things that that really light us up yeah that's awesome uh, it, that's beautiful yeah. to hear and I, I, I always used to think, like, why does everyone else find it so hard to get their kids to eat something like snow peas? And and then I then <laughs> we moved it. I'm like, oh, because wow, they're really floppy and gross. They're flaccid and floppy, <laughs> tasteless. Yeah. So so talk to us a little bit about growth or expansion or your yeah. visions for Food Connect. Okay. So because we're a little bit different, you know, we're not really. We're not, <laughs> I mean, we don't want to be anti-business, right? We're not anti-business because we see business as a force for good. It can be a force for good. I think if we sit around waiting for governments to do shit, it's just not going to happen. So we really need business to step up. And and that's really could, the problem with a lot of society, right? We are waiting for someone else to do the stuff, yeah. which or is we're why I love what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I mean, you know, like we're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Like if, if you followed our journey over the last 12 years, as you would have seen on Fuck Up Night, Carly, you know, <laughs> we should actually be out of business. We have no right to be in business in, in many respects because of some of the decisions that have been made over the years or the experiments that we've tried or some crazy ideas that have put us at risk of closing. But because of our social capital, which is a term that, I think we're going to hear more and more of in the future because we've got a community of farmers, customers, staff and supporters. So even people interstate and overseas know about us, are supporting us, not financially, I wish, but um, they're supporting us just through their sharing of the story, sharing, you know, our Facebook posts, Instagrams, whatever. Because of that social capital, we have been able to ride out the ups and downs, which I think any other small business probably would have had to shut their doors. So that difference um, also feeds into our our growth plans. So we don't want, we're not aiming for world domination. We're not empire builders. We've always taken the view if um, that we're standing on the shoulders of other people's good ideas because we didn't start in a vacuum. We started with 
a bunch of people who came together. They'd had experiences in lots of different areas and they thought, well, let's try this model. So we're standing on their, their shoulders and it's not ours to sell to anyone else. It belongs to the common. It belongs to the community. And so for us, we have had to battle because we've had a lot of people come to us and saying, you know, you could franchise this model and blah, blah, blah and make shitloads of money. And, and while that's very attractive and it's also not, not in terms of financially attractive but in terms of world domination attractive, mm. if we can change the food system overnight just mm. through this model, then, hey, wouldn't that be fantastic? <laughs> yes, it would. And we have given it a go. We've replicated in Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide. And we've also given our IP to a number of small community groups in remote and rural areas for them to do it themselves. And we've, we're aware of the view that if it's a good idea that's worth sharing and that will change the world, then it needs to be, a lot of it needs to be open sourced and shared. We need to be able to allow people to take the good bits and run with it themselves because A, that feeds into the entre entrepreneurial spirit of individuals. B, what works in Brisbane, where we're based, isn't necessarily going to work in Sydney. It's not necessarily going to work mm. in Bellingen. Yeah. It's not necessarily yeah. going to work in Cairns. Every location has its own seasonal variations. We're talking about food here. So, we talk, so we've got different types of growers. We've got different types of produce. We've got different types of eaters with need, different types of needs. They're going to have to figure that out for themselves. We don't have all the answers. So... Replicating the principles like the manifesto and the cultural artefacts that we've developed over the years, that is something that we could definitely provide a monetary value or some kind of training on. We haven't sort of got our heads around it. We just usually just give it away and spend a week with people. Because <laughs> um, that's sort of, it's the building of the relationships that, because at the same time we're building a movement so we've always got our eye on the bigger picture in building the movement and sharing the love and giving empowering people to go and take an idea and you know make it happen I love it you know the the it's not about necessarily the business growth but movement growth and what you're building as a sustainable foundation for others to leapfrog off and yeah. So it's like because because what my the question really came from this you know it, it this concept is so it, what you've done is essentially show people it can be done and mm. and that uh, you, uh, you want more farmers to have access to it you want more communities everywhere and I totally get the whole franchise thing that's where my brain went for sure but it's just beautiful hearing your response to that which is. It, Yes, but it's more the the sharing and the growth and the expansion and empowering of the other communities to do it. Yeah, yes, you know? exactly. Not having to be the the ruler of all, or you know, knowing necessarily what each community needs. Yeah, and I think you know, as a society, I think we are moving beyond that. Like, there's more and more distrust in kind of institutions. And we just don't want to become, you know, this sort of like immovable institution, you know, that's that's our sort of, yeah, we would hate that. Because um, then you're just kind of replicating what you're standing <laughs> against. 
too. Exactly. You know? That's exactly but, right. Yeah. But then what exactly. happens when more and more and more people, as more and more and more people will, will want to take part in something like this? Then we get more and more competition, which is happening to us. Like we've actually in the last couple of years really felt the pinch of people kind of appropriating our messages and, um, you know, putting a bit of greenwashing on and, you know, telling their customers that they're doing but not really doing it. So there is a bit of that, but it's up to the eater, it's up to the consumer to really be a food citizen and, you know, scratch the surface and see what's underneath if they're interested enough in it. I guess for us a successful model would be rather than have all the wealth and the control concentrated centrally like the central markets and Coles and Woolies who have 80%, we think our theory is that a highly distributed network of small, diverse enterprises, food hubs, communities getting together and being self-reliant would actually address most of the environmental and social problems, even just if you focus just on food. If, you know, totally. food is so a it's big, kind of like yeah. decentralising the food system. Yeah, yep. And, and so, I don't know, like you see in those beautiful villages in France and and Germany and and Spain where they've got, you know, the little town and then they've, the, the town it used to be, not so much anymore, but it used to be completely supported by the farmers around it. Everything they needed was provided by those people that, you know, chose to make stuff on the outskirts. And so we have this kind of vision for Australia that we can actually do that too, but just in a different form, you know. We can... We can have smaller regional areas that, you know, aren't villagey but more like, you know, on the scale of towns, helping each other in a network. So one area might be really good at growing bananas, the other's corn, the other, you know, whatever, mangoes, get them all together and start supplying each other locally. Because at the moment, North Queensland banana growers harvest their bananas, stick them on trucks, send them to the central markets in Brisbane And if you're a resident in Cairns, the only way you can get a banana is by going to Coles or Woolies or a supermarket to go and buy your banana after the truck has shipped it all the way back up to Cairns. Get out. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound very efficient to me. And, you know, it's it's almost, you know... uh, it's mind-blowing. It just seems blowing. ridiculous. It's, it's a crazy food system. It's insane. That is, that just blows my mind. I, I can't even get my head around it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the sort of food system in Australia that we're dealing with. And I'll tell you a little story if we've got time about the floods in 2011. So just we thought, oh, my God, because Brisbane was under a cloud, southeast Queensland was under a cloud for about three months, and we thought, geez, this is, this, this is actually going to be the end of us because this local food system thing means we're sitting under the one weather system in our region and all our farmers are experiencing the same weather, which means none of them can grow anything, none of them can harvest anything. We're done. That's it. The model's been proven wrong. Might as well shut up shop. But what actually happened was because of our localised food system, there's, oh, and we're very lucky in southeast Queensland because there's lots of microclimates where they can grow lots of different things. So in Stanthorpe, it's really cool in winter perfect for stone fruit we've got you know and grapes in summer we've got and and in summer Stanthorpe's great for salad you know all sorts of lovely greens because they've still got really cool mornings whereas in other parts of southeast Queensland it's way too hot to grow 
Um, we've got, you know, oranges up in citrus up in Gainda. We've got beautiful tomatoes in Thunderbird. We've got, you know, these microclimates where particular types of vegetables and fruits grow really well. And we've got increasing urban farmers too who are starting to contribute to food connect through lovely fresh herbs and small microgreens. So we were lucky in that respect. Our farmers were able to still grow and because they had small vehicles and because they didn't have like huge irrigation equipment, they didn't have massive tractors, you know, they're, they're, they're all very small, they were able to get into their fields, get what they needed pop them in the, their small vans and use all the back roads because their local knowledge was so good to get the produce to the warehouse. Now, we're only about, I don't know, maybe 2Ks from Rockley Markets, which was completely underwater at this stage. We were, we're based in Salisbury and Brisbane, which is just a little bit higher than Rockley. So at one point during that week of floods, we were the only food business that were receiving goods and we were getting lots of big guys coming and knocking on our door wanting to see if we could store stuff for them. But we did not miss one delivery during the Brisbane floods to our customers because we had, you know, this constant supply of small local farmers' produce. It was just amazing. And we thought we were done for. But for us, it proved to the model that even in a climate disaster like the floods, it could still keep going. Meanwhile, up in Gympie, where the Bruce Highway was completely cut in two, we had customers going into Woolworths and stocking up, of course, as you do, because who knows when you're going to be able to get, you know, your next meal when the, you know, when the food, if the food, if the highway is cut, it means the food isn't getting through. And that's scary when you live in a flood region, you know, yeah. because it, it happens all the time. The fuel dries up. You you know, I yes. used to live um, in Nambucca and uh, oh, in Nambucca yeah. Heads on the mid-north coast and we would get cut off all the time on either side no fuel, no fresh food coming in, and the only choice you really have in those times is to buy local, which yes. is so good yeah, <laughs> and so shit. It's there. But, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't need fuel. You can't drive anywhere because the roads are all cut. Exactly. Yeah, but everyone goes into a panic and the, the shelves empty. And Exactly. Um, well, this is yeah, what happened chaos. in Gimsy. There was one story that I heard where a woman was in Woolies or Coles, I can't remember which one, and she had 10 um, loaves of bread in her trolley and she got to the checkout and the attendant said to her, I'm really sorry, but we can only ration two loaves per customer because otherwise it's not fair that, you know, everyone, one person gets a lot and other people miss out. This customer was so angry that she threw eight loaves on the floor and stomped on them <gasps> in front of the attendant. And so for me, that's just like a perfect illustration of the kind of behaviours that come out in times of crisis. And I feel like if that's just one small, well, it wasn't a small flood, let's not trivialise it, it was a major event. But if that's the sort of thing that happens in our communities, I mean, like there's this theory that we're only nine meals away from anarchy, which is basically three days. If the population doesn't get three days of food, then that's when things really start getting scary. People's behaviour starts starts going weird. <laughs> so I was kind of like, well, that's another reason to keep it local, you know. Let's let's keep this because people get that, you know, that sense of security. They think, oh, my God, I've got to stock up. Who knows how long I'm going to be without what I need. So creating local food systems is a really good way of creating resilience in your local community as well. 
I just pretty much love every single thing that you're saying. Really, really <laughs> hard. That's such a and it's I'm not easy though. Like I guess I am, you know, pointing out all the really great parts about it, but it is it is very tough, you know. Look, I it's tough to do. I you know, I'm just even thinking about how tough it must have been to convince farmers. You know, the yeah, process yeah. that you must have had to go through to build relationships and trust there. And because your business wouldn't exist if you didn't get them over the line and no and take care like that's a that's a huge big deal so I I think I can actually see that a lot of the times this is not an easy business to run but obviously the rewards personally are just so great yeah yeah personally I mean I had this discussion with my 14 year old son this morning and he said because I used to be a criminologist way back when and I and he said mom why don't you just go back to criminology you know you can earn a mozza you don't have to worry about all these people blah 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 blah." and I said well Darcy you know I'm not motivated by money some people are I'm motivated by social justice and and you might be motivated by you know I don't know artistic pursuits you might be motivated by other things like we're not all made the same way, so the rewards are different for everybody. For me personally, I do come from a social justice background, so the whole food justice and the food sovereignty stuff for me is what mm-hmm. feeds me. Mm-hmm. Knowing that we've got this, we're slowly building this movement of food citizens um, who are participating in the you know, control, access, all those decisions that need to be made in the food system that we've pretty much outsourced to Coles and Woolies mm-hmm. We're encouraging consumers to make for themselves and, and to have a sense of empowerment around that. So that's what really feeds me. If I was in it for the money, I would have been gone a long time ago, as you, <laughs> as you probably guessed by now. <laughs> but, you know, the lifestyle's good. Like, we've, you know, we're, we've got a great community of people around us. We've got beautiful food. I can't think of much more that I'd want. Anyway, so incredible and different. so refreshing because we do. But, you know, that's the key, right? Like everybody is different. And I think in yeah. this kind of world we're really sold this idea that that we're in it for the money and if we're not, we have some kind of weird block around that. Yes. And yes. what I've loved about yeah. this conversation is that it's about more than that. It doesn't Like being in business doesn't just have to be about making shitloads of money and being wealthy and having the house overlooking the ocean and the private mm. jet. But just because you're not focused on the money also doesn't mean you're, um, I don't know, money frigid no. <laughs> or you know what I mean? Like with yes. all these huge blocks around money, it just means that you're finding your wealth in other ways, which was really exactly. the reason that I wanted to get you on because we can be made to feel bad about yes. not wanting to make a shitload of money and it's just nice to have that refreshing perspective where yeah. for you that's not the driver and that is totally fine because your life is super rich anyway. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, we're fed this this line that it's all about the economy. Well, it's not all about the economy, you know. <laughs> it's not all about money. Um, people don't lie on their deathbeds going, oh, if only I'd made an extra million dollars, you know. They lie on their deathbed saying, I wish I'd spent more time with their kids. You know, I wish, you know, I said I love you to my wife more often. That's, you know, I don't know. Yeah, That's I wish I followed my heart. <laughs> yeah, I wish I, yeah, I wish I listened to my instinct about I wish that I had a crack. Thing that I really yeah. wanted to do. 
Yeah, you know, and, and for some people, their creative expression is business and making money and good on them, that's fine. I, you know, I don't want to diss business people because business is good. Like it really, it, it draws in all those amazing human traits that, you know, yes, it can change the world. It really can. It's just that sometimes the system that we're in can blind us to what potentially we could be doing with our money. You know, so yeah, love it. Well, this thank, thank you so much yeah. for coming on. Huge, beautiful, oh, you're welcome. Wonderful story to share, <laughs> and I took so much away from it. It's just, you know what? It's just so refreshing, and I yeah. think, I mean, I just love knowing more about the the people, the person, and the the couple. I guess especially behind Food Connect, I was in it, um, and loved it because I felt like it was just the tiniest little thing that I could do to connect my family and myself back to you know yeah, real food the source of food. and the source of yeah, the food and yeah. just it was a way that we could direct our money straight towards the people who work really damn hard to bring it to us but now mm. learning so much more about the company and the way that you're running it I would definitely say you tick the box of someone keeping good company. So I've been awesome to hear your story and, and to hear oh, that's good to, to have you on the show. <laughs> oh, no, for sure. Hugely inspiring. Oh, well, thank you so much, Lisa and Carly. It's been such a lovely way to start my day, actually. And so, Emma Kate, just for those who might not be familiar with Food Connect and where to find you, would you mind telling um, people where they connect can connect with Food Connect? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So online is the best way. We've got um, so it's foodconnect.com.au is the website. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, and also we've just this year started our not for profit, the Food Connect Foundation. It's totally unfunded at the moment but we're working on a strategy with um, a nice little board and um, we're hoping to attract some philanthropists to help us really do that sort of food system level advocacy and policy change down the track, hopefully. But at the moment, we're just running events. We do farm tours. We do gigs at the warehouse. So it's not just food you're getting. You're getting lots of opportunities to connect with your farmers and your fellow community members as well. Amazing. <laughs> so great. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're very welcome. <laughs> Thanks for sticking around. See you next Monday. Remember to subscribe and keep good company.